Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 10, 11 p.m. It is Monday night and I am really pumped to get this um, podcast out to you because this is one of my favorite messages that Hannah has done in a long time. Uh, Actually, I have been requesting this uh, message for a very long time, so... Uh, you know, I should hope that it's one of my favorites. Uh, this goes back to even before different church existed when Hannah and I were at a previous church. Um, I've always thought this would be a really cool subject for a message. Um, so basically, it's a uh, Easter message um, a week before Easter. And um, if you've ever gone to church on Easter, you pretty much know what the message is about. Um, Jesus died. Uh, he fulfilled the prophecies. He was a sacrifice for us and he rose again and he had to die to, I don't know, um, appease God's anger towards us or, you know, depending on how you've heard it taught before, those are the major talking points. Um, but what I was interested in was why was he murdered? So just put aside the fact that, you know, prophecy and sacrifice like he was murdered he was like apprehended and murdered and i just have always found it interesting we don't really talk about why very often and i think it's because most churches are a little scared of the why uh so anyway i've been thinking about this message for a really long time and um Hannah knocked it out of the park. She did a fantastic job. I just, I know you're going to love this message. This is definitely a good one to share with people. So by all means, uh, talk about it on the socials. Let people know this is a cool message for people to hear. Um, Okay, announcements. Uh, We are going to the movies together. (coughs) Excuse me, on the 15th. Uh, We're going to go see... um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. If you want to jump in on that, go to diff.church and click on events. Um, Other than that, we got Easter coming up this week. It's going to be really cool. We're going to do some awesome stuff for the kiddos, and we're going to have a great time. So come on out in person if you can, and if you can't, check us out on the podcast next week. Cool? All right. Um, Let's get into uh, a very special Palm Sunday. So it's technically Palm Sunday. We're not talking about anything related to that whatsoever. Well, it's tangentially related. Do you want to know the title of today's message? Why was Jesus murdered? (laughs) Solid question, Aaron says. (laughs) Okay, so there's so many ways it could go with this, like so many metaphors we could use, but the problem with metaphors is they are in fact just metaphors and don't really translate to how shocking the story is we are going to read in the Bible. But I want you to have like just some idea of the feeling. So just imagine we're just on a Sunday. We're at church. We're doing normal Sunday stuff. So today's Sunday before Easter. Easter's next week. Big party happening. It's like the Super Bowl of Jesus sports, as I have heard evangelical pastors say, even though I hate that line. Um, and like, okay, so we're all in church doing normal stuff. And then some person comes in here and starts destroying everything. Like, smashes the mic stands breaks the guitars, throws chairs around. Like, what would we be doing right now? I would be in the corner having a panic attack. (laughs) Um, Although, just for your peace of mind, that would never happen because my husband would stop them. (laughs) 
And I think a couple of y'all would too. Like one chair would be thrown and we would be like, no, sir. I assume it's a sir, um, but that's be sexist of me. So, but like, can you imagine if someone just came in here and started wrecking everything and yelling? We would all be freaking out. So just like keep that, keep that uh, feeling in your heart as I read the story. So it's from John chapter two, verses 13 through 22. It says this, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem, and in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices, and he saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. And Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, then show us by some miraculous sign. And Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And they exclaimed, what? It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is a crazy story. Like, if you're familiar with the story, you might be like, I mean, it's just a story. It's just what Jesus said. No, this is insane. Okay, Jesus, one guy, made a whip out of some rope that was lying around and chased all, all of the sheep, the cattle, the birds, the people who were selling them, and the money changers out of the temple. One person with a rope whip. Savage. Savage. How does that even happen, okay? And like, I think how we picture the temple matters, okay? The temple is like the beating heart of Judaism. It's not like some church on a corner that you can go to whenever you want. Um, the temple is like the center of worship and music and politics and religion, and it was the place of national mourning and national celebration. It was the center of everything. But above all else, it was where Yahweh, Israel's God, promised to live. So God lives there in the temple. And then a prophet from Galilee came in with a whip and turns everything upside down. I feel like we could just forget how shocking this must have been. Jesus just running around like a crazy person, causing such chaos. There's animals everywhere. He's running around yelling with a whip. It doesn't say that he's yelling, but like, can you run around with a whip chasing people not yelling? Like, I don't think I would be able to do that. He's causing all this chaos. There's such a commotion. There's sheep flying everywhere. There's coins on the ground. Imagine people trying to grab them, I assume. Um, and then the religious leaders come out of the temple. They come out and they're like, excuse you, what is happening? How dare you? Who do you think you are that you can just come in here? And Jesus replies, stop turning my father's house into a den of thieves. Okay, and then they're like, well, if, you have, if God gave you the authority to do this, then show us some miraculous sign. Prove it, in other words. But like, what kind of sign were they looking for? Did they want like an earthquake? Like a heavenly host of angels coming down? Like, um, uh, did they want to be struck by lightning? Like, what, what would have convinced them? We don't know. Would anything have convinced them? 
No matter what Jesus did, would it have been enough? Or would they have been like, oh, he's doing that because of the devil? Because they didn't use that line before. <laughs> and Jesus answers their question like very cryptically. He's like, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And now there's ancient traditions about this. Like the temple had been destroyed and rebuilt. Some believed it would happen again. And Herod the Great had begun this revitalization program, uh, very political, you know. He wanted the Jews to be happy with him, so he's like, we'll rebuild the temple and they'll be happy. So this, he started this 46 years ago, and it was like not even completed, most of a temple. And the religious leaders are like, excuse me, it has taken 46 years <laughs> to build this house for God, and you think you're gonna build it up in three days? What kind of an idiot are you? But of course, Jesus was speaking about his own death and resurrection. Jesus is the true temple. The word made flesh, as we talked about last week when we talked about Lazarus. The place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus takes all these traditions and applies them to himself. And there's no doubt that John, the writer, like, there's no doubt what he thinks this means. Because first of all, it's Passover time. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem during Passover, which was a time when freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression, was being celebrated. And John wants us to understand that what Jesus is doing in the temple is the new meaning of Passover. Basically, all these realities that Passover has been having for all this time are pointing to Jesus. But I have a question. What the heck was wrong with the temple in the first place? that Jesus felt the need to just go in and do all kinds of property damage. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly Jesus is like, the whole system is corrupt. This needs to stop. I'm going to burn this place down, if you've watched Office Space. <laughs> I'm going to burn this place down. Like, there's this trade, like, marketplace atmosphere. And Jesus seems to be saying, this is not what this is for, okay? But let's think about this logically and practically for a second. It makes sense that the animal merchants and the money changers are there in the temple. Like we can get very like Christian and offended. Like how dare they sell animals in God's house? We're like, yeah, Jesus knew something was right. But it makes sense. It's logical, right? Because people were coming from all over the country and beyond during Passover to offer sacrifices. And there were specific requirements for how and when and what you could sacrifice. So if you were traveling a long distance to get to Jerusalem, does it not make more sense to buy a sheep when you get there than to drag one with you for 300 miles, right? And if you had a different kind of currency, because there were all kinds of currencies floating around in the ancient world, it makes sense to have someone there who can change your currency into the local currency so that you can then buy some flour or some oil or whatever it is you were going to sacrifice before God. There's no problem here, right? This all seems logical, reasonable, like it's actually helping people. This is the problem. First of all, the money lenders were charging an exorbitant markup. They were taking advantage of people who had come to participate in faith. This has no modern parallels, right? We have never heard of people taking advantage of other people who have come to just participate in faith. We've never heard of religious leaders promising miracles or healings or um, a thousand blessings. If you just 
donate to their cause, or they're like, send you a scrap of fabric in the mail that they supposedly prayed over. Like, we've never heard of such things in our day, right? The Bible has nothing to say to us in our modern context, is what I'm saying. So the moneylenders were using people far beyond the reasonable service fee that it might take for them to make a living. And second, the animal sellers were also using people because all the different types of animals were there. You ever read the Bible, you're like, the sheep and the cows and the goats and the birds and the flour and the fine flour and the oil and the oil. why? All of this stuff. Actually, the sacrificial system is built to be inclusive for everyone. And if you had a lot of resources, you presented a cow. If you had a medium amount of resources, you presented a sheep or a goat. And if you had no resources, you're poor, you presented a bird. The hierarchy is still the same today, honestly. Like steak is super expensive, chicken costs almost nothing. Right? So the whole sacrificial system was actually built on making everyone have an equal playing field. You couldn't come in and be like, I have no money, therefore God doesn't want me here. Also, this is a side note. Y'all know I love my side notes. Um, <laughs> have you ever wondered why in the Old Testament it's like, here's the specific animals that you may sacrifice and how you do it. It must be a male animal without blemish. Why? Is it because males were so important? Is this another vestige of the patriarchy? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> do you want to know why? It is because they were not as valuable as female animals. The males were expendable, in other words. <laughs> Because, let's think about this logically, it takes one male cow to produce hundreds of baby cows. It takes one female cow to produce one baby cow. So what is more important for people's livelihood and sustenance throughout the year? The females. So actually, this is another sign, right? Another instance where the sacrificial system is built to protect the poor people. They're like, if you have a sheep, and it gives birth to a bunch of other sheep, and bring the male one. Don't bring the one that may sustain you for years to come. I want to protect you. This is what God's saying. And these people, okay, these vendors, they're charging out the butt for animals. <laughs> they're just charging so much money. And it's wrong whether you take advantage of rich people or poor people, right? We shouldn't be taking advantage of anyone. But it's especially wrong when you take advantage of a person who does not have any other resources. So let's say I traveled the one trip I make the whole year. I've come 30 miles, which is a massive trip if you're walking. I mean, honestly, like one mile is a massive trip for me if I'm walking. So like 30 miles these people have traveled. They didn't want to bring a pigeon with them or whatever, a dove. Dove is a pigeon, just so you know. They're not cooler. Um, they don't want to bring the whole way because that's just a lot, right? They're going to buy one when they get there. And then they get there and they find out, oh, it's three times the cost of what it should be. And I don't have enough money. And that means I can't participate. I can't make my sacrifice. This isn't inclusive. This isn't available for everyone. And God's now going to be mad at me because I can't do the thing. If I had known, then I would have brought something, but I didn't know. I thought it... You see why Jesus would be mad? Okay, put a pin in this. Or as I say to small children, hold that thought. We're going to jump for a second to John chapter 11, right where we left off last week when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
It says this. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs, and if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. The Roman army will then come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people and for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation, and not only for the nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered throughout the world. Remember, this message is called, Why Was Jesus Murdered? We're getting to it. There's a meeting called by the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is the first and only time in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the word Romans is mentioned. The Roman army. I think this explains a great deal. So there's this collective anxiety that happens, right? We have collective anxiety. Um, like, for example, we've had collective COVID anxiety for two straight years. The Jews also had collective anxiety about the Romans. The Romans had taken over much of the Middle East about a century before Jesus comes along. There were entire legions of soldiers. A legion is like four to 6,000 soldiers multiple legions stationed just a few miles north in Syria. And the governor could just call on them at any moment and be like, hey, I have a problem. We're going to call out the police and the National Guard and the army. And that had happened in living memory, meaning there were people alive who remembered the last time the governor called out the legions and thousands of Jews had been killed or crucified and the rebellion was squashed. So, though many Jewish leaders greatly wanted to be free, they much preferred the semi-freedom that Rome allowed them to have to the devastation that would follow if a major revolution broke out. And they clearly thought that's what was going to happen if Jesus went any further. Raising the dead raising Lazarus back to life a couple of miles from Jerusalem, no less, where all the people could run back and tell their friends. During Passover time, the time when the most people would have been in the city, that was too much. Obviously, Jesus had to be gathering support for some kind of march on Jerusalem. And when that happened, the Romans would call out the troops, and it would be the end of everything. Now, Ironic, right? Because if you're reading John, you know that Jesus had no intentions whatsoever of doing a march on Jerusalem or anything of the sort. He was not mounting a political revolution. The authorities are jumpy, very nervous. And of course, you know, again, in our Christian, like, we just read the story. We're like, how dare they not understand what Jesus was doing? How dare they be afraid? Well, okay, we can scoff at them. But their fears are justified because less than 40 years later, a large-scale revolution does break out. And guess what happens? The Romans come, and they squash it, and they burn the temple down, and they destroy most of Jerusalem. And the temple has not been rebuilt to this day. In fact, it's currently a 
holy site for Islam. So they, this is a reasonable, logical fear they have, actually, of the Romans coming to crush them, except that Jesus wasn't starting a revolution. And John highlights Jesus' purpose by pointing out Caiaphas's response, his proposal, one man should die for the people. It's kind of a prophecy, but it's also like a statement of cynical politics from top to bottom, right? You guys don't realize it's better if he takes the blame for this and dies then we all die. And Jesus would indeed die. I mean, executed in a manner reserved for rebels and traitors, but his death would not just be for the nation, as Caiaphas says, but for all God's children all around the world, no matter where they find themselves. The disciples warned Jesus last week, we talked about this, to go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And here we have the reason why. They are afraid that Jesus is going to take away the tiny sense of safety and security that they have scraped together for themselves. Unless we think we're better, when we are afraid, we are the most defensive. We are the most likely to lash out. And one more thing, for centuries, the way to relate to God had been very clearly prescribed. You make these sacrifices, in the temple. You present this offering to the priest who will burn it on the offer. You do this and then this and then this. That's how it's done. God will be happy with you. And so every day people brought their sacrifices and every day the priest accepted them and burned them on the altar and the smoke from the altar went up to the heavens. Kind of like, like it never would have gone out like the Olympic flame, just always burning, right? You could probably see it from anywhere in Jerusalem, the smoke trail. Another reminder daily to think about faith and interaction with God. That's where God is. I want us to think very carefully here. Jesus goes into the temple and makes a mess of everything. The animals run away. The money changers and vendors, he chases them out with a whip. Which means what? No one can buy anything to sacrifice. No one can get their currency changed. And if no one can purchase their sacrifice, then there isn't anything to sacrifice. Which means, and this is the crux of the whole matter, the smoke coming up from the altar stopped. Stopped. After how many years of it constantly burning? It stopped altogether. During Passover, all temple proceedings ground to a halt. Of course, that in itself is a sign, right, of what's going to come in 40 years when the temple is no more. Y'all can come back up here. I'm almost done. I'm not just saying that like the good Pentecostal I am, and I have like 17 more times to say that before I let you go. I really am almost done. <laughs> Why was Jesus murdered? And I think we should be clear because we should call it what it really is, right? The murder of an innocent person. Because we get very churchy and we're like, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus sacrificed himself. Okay, but actually murder is what happened because he was innocent and did not have to die, right? It didn't have to happen that way because there were other options, but in another sense, it did have to happen that way because this is textbook human behavior when we or our safety are threatened. 
There wasn't another option because the Pharisees and the Romans couldn't think of one. Just like we can't think of one when we're afraid. They're like, we have to shut this down. Whatever it is, we cannot let it play out. It might be dangerous. We never do that. We're never like, what is this? I don't know. Shut it down. It might be dangerous. Might make me feel sad. They had very justified fears. And they couldn't let it play out. Of course, they killed him. But this is where I want to leave you. With the idea that actually there is another option. And Jesus took it. Because the Pharisees wanted to violently kill him. And Jesus let them. He could have called down the host of heaven to fight a war for him. Or, even more reasonable, just incited his followers, of whom by now there were thousands. Just a word from Jesus, and they would have riot. They would have saved him. If no one fights back, it's easy to kill one person. You can't kill crowds and crowds and crowds. It's not possible. Jesus could have been like, hey, help me out here. He could have just, you know, like smote them with lightning from heaven, like Zeus or something. But he didn't. Instead, he let it play out. He didn't respond to violence with more violence. He didn't respond to fear with more fear. Instead, he went quietly and willingly into his own death. And in doing so, exposed all the fear and all the violence and all the evil for what it truly was, the worst we have to offer. Side note for Revelation. Y'all know I love Revelation. Revelation plays out kind of like a horror movie. And there's all this stuff that keeps happening, and humans just keep doing worse and worse and worse things. And it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And the question is, why can't God just stop it? Because it could happen. Right? That would be better for us if God was just like, no, stop it. Stop it. I feel like sometimes I need God to do that. Stop it <laughs> to me. Why not? Because it has to come out. Have you, have you guys ever seen Dr. Pimple Popper? Sorry for like the image that might be in your head. But basically, if you don't know what this is, don't look it up. You'll be horrified. Um, you think of a pimple, but like times 100. <laughs> and you cannot slap a Band-Aid on it. Why? Because the infection is still inside. And it will eventually kill you. It has to come out. You have to clean it out before you can start the healing process. And Jesus could have fought back, but guess what? That would have just trapped more infection. It would have trapped more violence and more fear in the same place where it already was. But instead, it came out. And in Revelation, same thing. All of, all of humanity does the worst it possibly can do, and it all comes out, and then God says, now we can heal. There's a third way. There's another option. The Pharisees couldn't see it. The Romans couldn't see it. And how many times in our lives do we not see it? 
Pharisees, they didn't take it, but Jesus did. He said, there's another way. And that way is worth fighting for, trying for. That way is why we're here. If that way doesn't exist, then what are we doing? Go home. <laughs> I think, we, like I say this, we say this in small group all the time. It can't all be bad. Because if it's all bad, then we wouldn't be here. I know so many of us have had experiences in faith communities that have been devastating to us or to someone we love dearly. And it's really easy to write off the whole thing and respond in the way that maybe we have been responded to. Why? Because it makes sense. But it can't all be bad. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Trying. Trying's pretty good. I think that's actually all Jesus wants of us, is to try, to not give up hope, even when we look at the world and we say, it looks like we ought to give up hope. It looks like this is useless and does nothing. It looks like no matter how much good we put into the world, the, the bad overshadows it. It looks like no matter how much good I do myself, I still feel like a bad person. But guess what? That's not true. There's a third way. And if you feel like crap, please hear me. You are fundamentally good. You are good inside. This feels hard because it is hard. Not because you're doing something wrong. And Jesus says, if you're tired, come to me and put the heavy things you're carrying down for a second. Just put them down. You don't have to carry them. If you want to, I'll let you. <laughs> but you don't have to. And we're always like the Pharisees. What if it's terrible? Here's this PowerPoint presentation of 27 things that could go wrong in this thing if I go down this path. But hear me, friends. What if it's great? What if it's great? And Jesus' disciples, as we're going to talk about next week, they look and they were like, no, this is terrible. There's no hope left here. How dare you, Jesus, not let me start a revolution for you? Like, how dare you? Just go walk willingly. And Jesus is like, hey, what if it's great? And they're like, it is not. And then it was. <laughs> what if it's great? 